0: You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor, Giles Parkinson, and leading energy analyst, David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Solar Energy, experts in solar energy management.
1: Hello, and thanks for joining our weekly podcast, Energy Insiders. A lot to talk about this week. We uh, finally got a big state based target, the legislation, well, on the horizon at least, and a bit more padded out in Victoria. New solar farms, which seems to happen every week, and a whole bunch of conferences. Um, lots to talk about. Uh, David Leach joining us again from ITK. How are you, David?
2: Afternoon to you, Giles, and afternoon to listeners, and afternoon to our special guest this week.
1: Yes, that's John Grimes. Nice and awesome, actually. John Grimes from the Australian Solar Council and um, Chief Executive of the Australian Energy Council. Thanks for joining us, John. Good afternoon, Giles and David. And, um, well, we're talking in the afternoon, but of course this is a podcast that people can download it at any time. So you might be listening to it in the morning or night time or, um, or overseas at some other time. Look, I guess the big thing this week was Victoria, um, the long-awaited V-RET announcement. We didn't actually see it, the legislation per se, but we saw an outline of it. Uh, more particularly, we saw a plan for 650 megawatts um, for reverse auctions, um, primarily wind, but I think there's going to be a little bit reserved for solar. And we also saw the result of um, the tender for powering the Melbourne tram network. So we're going to see two new solar farms as a result of that um david good news i guess um victoria was criticized by the federal government for you know being irresponsible and taking matters into their own hands but i guess in the absence of any federal legislation um why not
2: well that's that's exactly right giles and i hope to talk a little bit later in the show uh, about how queensland and victoria and south australia are all doing so much better than new south wales and new south wales with Don Hyman, Harman and uh, Amy Keane, You know, talk a good talk, but don't actually nothing happens. Whereas in Victoria and in Queensland, they've actually got on for, with it. Uh, this is 650 megawatts, but um, and an, as, an unusual, as I understand it, uh, reverse auction scheme, which consists partly of a fixed price and partly of a contract for differences. So. I wonder what difference that will make.
1: Well, it's interesting. It's going to be a bit like this ACT as far as I understand it. So if a wind farm comes in or a solar farm comes in and say bids $70 a megawatt hour, then if the cost goes below that, then the government makes up the difference. If the wholesale price is above that, then the the government actually gets a payment.
2: yeah, yeah, that part's the standard uh, contract for differences, but in this case, uh, there's an extra element, which is a fixed price every month mm. uh, that's been paid. And I'm just not sure how those two will interact. And you'll also see that uh, the Victorian government's giving um, bidders into the reverse auction, the choice of bidding the LRETS in. Uh, or the RECs in or uh, retaining the RECs and selling them themselves and and so I think for the people bidding into this auction uh, as usual there'll be a lot of thinking caps on um, particularly I suppose as to what the value of the RECs will be. Um, well, beyond 2020 and how to transfer that risk. Yeah,
1: well, indeed. I, I can't imagine them pricing um, a very high price at all for LGCs. In any case, um, John, they're going to have a fair time to think about it because the um, I don't think the actual details of the auction are coming up until mid-October. There's going to be about three or four months to make a bid and another three or four months to consider it. So probably not until mid-next year before we see your result. And, Nothing much built, but, but it is a good thing, though, John, and much needed, I suppose, because, um, because of the absence of federal
0: initiatives. Yeah I, I tend to think about uh, you know the state governments in this environment as being a bit like the appendix in the human body. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it, it, well it's the last place the bacteria goes to sort of hide in the event of a catastrophe uh, and it and in this case it's really carrying the load for, for renewable energy vision and action uh, and so look, th- this is this is uh, you know that the states have responsibility in this area they're taking action they're not relenting uh, they're, they're not buckling under the pressure and that's a really Positive thing for for our industry and for the country. Yeah, look, it's
1: going to be interesting because Victoria is the first one that's actually going to legislate it, apart from the ACT. I suppose. Um, I'm not too sure that Lily D'Ambrosio and Daniel Andrews want to be remembered as the appendix on the body
0: of the renewable energy industry. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I can tell you what, if you have a catastrophic uh, infection, the, the appendix is very helpful. Indeed.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's also worth mentioning that it, uh, it's important for electricity prices that Victoria gets on with it because gas is setting the price in Victoria virtually every half hour at the moment. And until we get more supply into Victoria and force some of that very expensive gas out, um, uh, you know, Victorians will be paying higher prices. So it's exactly the right thing to do to get some new supply into the system.
1: And it seems to be the way that they've structured this with this Contract for Difference um, seems to actually put a peak on their own or or, or a cap on their own um, exposure to it. Um, I was a little bit surprised that they only thought there was going to be a $30-a-year benefit to households from the reduction in wholesale prices. I wonder if that's conservative, David.
2: That I'll have to do some more work on, Giles. haven't, haven't done this sum so yet. Fair enough.
1: Look, let's switch um, straight from Victoria up to Queensland. Now, John, um, you're holding a conference this coming week in Queensland. Um, Queensland's just been the most remarkable center of hive of activity we just saw during the week um news of a 250 megawatt project um, this time solar project this time by shell um up near one right in the heart of coal country that adds to goodness knows how many megawatts of um of solar that's sort of in the pipeline. In fact, I actually just updated our little list. I think there's about two and a half thousand megawatts actually under construction or about to start and another 13,000 megawatts in the pipeline. And a lot of it's happening in North Queensland, which I guess is the reason you're holding the conference there.
0: Yeah, look, it is. And so not only are we seeing almost a gigawatt of projects starting construction this year, 2017, representing almost $2.2 billion worth of investment, but we're seeing the creation of about 1,780 direct jobs as a result and a whole lot of indirect activity. And we thought it was really important that we shine a spotlight into what's really happening in the north. If we want to plan for building capacity in our north for creating jobs in regional Queensland, in bringing uh, electricity prices down in regional investment, then what better way to do that than to celebrate what's really happening on the ground. It, it, and it I,
1: kind of gets missed yeah. doesn't it, because everyone's talking about this new coal fired generator that some of the um, Conservatives want to build, but there's, as you
0: say, there's at least a thousand megawatts just, in that, just around the old Collinsville area in Townsville. You know, and I think some of the the jobs in coal mining is are overstated. You know, these state of the art mines they have driverless trucks, they have uh, laser precision uh, robots, basically doing the work. And so the propensity for the jobs I think is 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 tenuous. Uh, whereas what we're talking about is 7, uh, 1780 Real jobs right now this year being delivered, and then of course all of the flow-on activity that creates for businesses in that part of the world, subcontractors, suppliers, and others, uh, the finance industry, and a whole lot of flow-on economic activity. So you know we're talking about what's real as opposed to what's speculative. Well, that's And you, John, you've got a great lineup for that conference. I was just looking at it myself, and I ideally wish
2: I have to go to Adelaide for something else. But you know, if I'd known about it a bit earlier, I, I mean, you've got the um, acting minister you've got the shadow minister uh, you've got uh, uh, queensland power which is which is basically all talking there as well as a long list of project proponents i think it looks like a really interesting conference in townsville
0: yeah and i think you know hearing directly from people doing the ross river solar farm the horton solar farm pacific hydro um uh, Gen X power um, you know storage companies and others i think that's exciting because we can hear from ourselves you know, what? what's the scope, what's the latest, what's the time frame, and how can we, the rest of the industry, get involved and benefit as a result?
1: It's interesting that you mentioned 1,700 jobs, because that's actually more um, than the 1,684 jobs that the um, advisor to Adani admitted in court testimony would be the um, sum total of jobs out of the uh, Carmichael coal mine. So um, solar has actually produced those jobs already in the investments there, so... Um that's a bit ironic, and it's nothing like the 15,000 jobs that um, some people still suggest. Um, David, um, one of the key players up there in the north is Lab, which actually floated on the, uh, made, it, made its debut on the Australian Stock Exchange this week. Interesting having another renewable energy company out there. Must be, um can't be an easy thing being listed and um, doing these sort of projects. What do you reckon?
2: Well, Kennedy uh, Park 2 is going to require a lot of financing. That's 1,200 megawatts, and we're still working on about 2 million a megawatt. So that's uh, over two, nearly the best part of $2.5 billion to get that done, plus $500 million of supporting transmission uh, expenditure that has to be made to there and out to Kidston. Um, uh, so, you know, they're a 50 million market cap now. They've got a, a, an exciting future in front of them at that rate. Uh, But that was enough money to get Windlab uh, part one, uh, sorry, to get Kennedy part one done. I just want to contrast, I think, um, Giles, quickly, what's been happening, what we've just heard about in Queensland, what we've seen in Victoria, with what's happening in New South Wales. I went to a TransGrid uh, uh, CSIRO seminar down in Canberra this week, uh, and uh, TransGrid have, um, I think, getting impatient, and they've commissioned Oricon, uh, to, do, uh, to look at the potential for putting uh, utilities PV into southwest New South Wales and into northwest Victoria, uh, whereas we know there's some transmission constraints at both ends of that. Mm. And, and you kind of think it might fit in with Snowy too, which, by the way, is going to be a lot more expensive than people think it is. And that that study from Oricon showed that, uh, and it's at a 50 by 50 metre level, and the interesting thing, it didn't just look at the the solar level, it looked at the existing land use. So it's trying to identify areas where the existing land use isn't too expensive, and so you could put the PV on. And they found that uh, between Yas and uh, Bell-Ranald, they basically could fit 40 gigawatts of utility PV and between Bound Ranald and somewhere in Victoria, another 20 gigawatts, and then you could probably add on 10 gigawatts of wind into that as well. Uh, And that's what you could, uh, you know, if you could do that, you could, what it needs is for the transmission to be built in advance of that. And yet we see the New South Wales government is so slow and lagging. They might get something like $3 billion from their 58% of snowy when the federal government builds it, but what are they gonna do with that money? And what, you know, that, that, well, that,
1: they, they're in a position. They are, to, they are talking about sort of, you know, these. I mean, even Don Harwin has been talking about these sort of, you know, renewable energy sort of, um, what, what did he call them? These sort of backbones going across the state and up and down it. So he's talking, but I don't know whether he's kind of sort of a bit like um, in the federal government, sort of hindered by many people in the party.
2: Giles, you know, the note I'm going to write on this is going to be called the road to hell is paved with good intentions.
1: (laughs) John, it's interesting. I mean, Transgrid actually came out a couple of weeks ago and talking about how they saw 100% renewables as both um, doable and affordable. So it's interesting. We've got the big network operators whose job it is to keep the power on um, talking
0: this way, but um, policy is still falling, falling well behind. Yeah. Look, I think those transmission companies, the infrastructure companies, have a big future. Uh, renewables plugging into this is going to, you know, be a big opportunity. But you know, at the local level, the distributor level, using that infrastructure backbone to facilitate transactions, this kind of peer-to-peer trading scenario, where people are using the back, backbone of the electricity network in the same way that we use the backbone of the internet network to facilitate transactions, is really exciting. And so they they should be embracing you know the the benefits of renewables. Uh, and I think there's uh, a great business for them in it if they do. It's interesting. Look, I'm just- Going
1: to throw in a bit of a wild thing that I hadn't um, mentioned before. It actually came from a, a reader feedback from about two episodes ago, and they just asked us, um, "Were because the way the Australian market's vertically integrated, and we've kind of got the networks, so you can see the future and get very excited about renewables and the distributed grid." Um, versus our vertical inter- integration comes from retailers and generators and the problem is that w- w- one of those businesses is trying to defend the other essentially a hedge against the other and it doesn't necessarily sort of mean in, in, in my view for um, the most effective transition because I think if you're seeing in the States and particularly Europe those companies which are like the new companies tend to be marrying the distributed, gr- um, distributed part of the um, Network with the uh, with the with new technology storage solar and EVs. Um, John, very quickly. I
0: mean, is this going to be a big impediment for us? Well, I think the smart integrated you know companies are already making the shift. They know that if they don't, uh, if they don't get into the game, they're going to have. External companies cannibalise parts of their business, so in effect, they've got they've got business units that are already starting to do that internally. Mm. Um, ultimately, history is on the side of, of those that are going to be the cheapest, uh, the most stable, and the cleanest. They're the they're the technologies that are going to have the advantage in this transition. Mm. Uh, and uh, and look, either they transition or they get left behind. Frankly, so um, David, your uh, Tuppence worth on this. Well, I was just going to ask John, uh, particularly as we get into the commercial
2: market, because the household market is very well established in Australia now, but the commercial market uh, and the demand charges, I'm just wondering what your users, whether you get any feedback from them as to how they're seeing the the growth of that market, John, and and, and the opportunities, particularly with, I keep thinking about using batteries to, to reduce demand charges, but is that a part of the business that you that your members are seeing some activity in at the moment?
0: Yeah, it, look, it absolutely is, and uh, and I would characterise that the, the game has fundamentally shifted. You're quite right. You know, households were really the only game in town. You know, for the last five seven years, uh, but that commercial and utility scale has just has just taken off. So talking about that commercial scale, uh, yes, there are lots of things people can do to optimise and actually come out with a better economic solution the difficulty is that there remains uncertainty about how incumbent providers will respond to that. And unfortunately, some of them do have levers that would enable them to jack up you know um, uh, daily access charging for example and fundamentally change the economics for someone wanting to go the other way so it's an area that we're very interested in I think if we start to see uh, anti-competitive behaviour here we need to call it out fast and uh, loudly Uh, and um, you know because we we can't have a Uncompetitive system because of the incumbent, you know, uh, benefit that somebody has for, for being the current provider. And
2: See, I think I think businesses are the guys getting left behind here. Uh, that you know, the big retailers have no interest really in providing uh, RET uh, certificates for them. They only really build enough supply to fulfil their mass market base. The business is the one that actually is less impacted by network charges, although it still is, but more by the increase in the generation cost. And, and I just don't think that they get the opportunities to sort of buy into the renewable story and lower their costs and mani- manage their um, uh, um, electricity costs as, as well as they'd like to. We've seen BHP, uh, sorry, One Steel, Blue Scope, I mean, rather, and, and a large, lot of other large industrials complaining about it lately, but you know they—they're they, not doing much to fix it up for themselves. either. Well,
1: some of them are though. I guess um, you know, Nectar Farms are moving into wind and storage, and um, there's um, the zinc refinery, Sims um, Sun Metals, up in Queensland, are building their own solar plant. Telstra's doing the same thing. So it's starting to seep through. Um, John, I suppose I'll um, leave the rest of the answer to you. But I think we're seeing a big increase in commercial solar, aren't we? Or but, but the penny's still not—the penny is yet to drop for many people.
0: I think that's right. and and I think it's very business specific. So it's also got to do with their demand profile., um, uh, it's got to do with the longevity of the business. You know we still have problems in terms of split incentives between tenants and landlords. Uh, but but as you say, increasingly you know s- seafood uh, processing plans, a whole lot of businesses that might not have traditionally been looking at renewables and storage as a way to mm-hmm. really manage and reduce their input costs are and uh, and so I agree with you, we, we are seeing uh, movement in this market but there's certainly a long way still to Tell go. Tell us about those rental agreements there because
1: I mean we often think about it in terms of households and um, household renters who can't access and this is becoming a bit of an issue now too because you know a lot of the middle class have got um, the, um, their solar but um, hasn't quite hit to the rent- rental market yet, but what's, what, what are the options then at the business level for businesses that rent their premises and, and want to get access to cheaper
0: solar? Probably the, the biggest single constraint that I hear often in the market is landlords that just won't give consent To roof penetrations. So anything that penetrates the roof that that actually enables you to sort of to to bolt solar onto the roof um, creates a a real risk profile in the minds of landlords uh, and they're very reluctant to proceed on that basis. That's why innovations like uh, you know some of these um, uh, stands that actually are weighted and don't require penetrations uh, you know become important Mm. but you know there is still education to be done uh, and work to be done in that sector so that's the biggest one that I hear.
1: Mm-hmm. John, I'm going to throw another one back to you. Some good news. Well, we hope it's good news um, on the standards thing for battery storage. This has become a major issue. The standards um, came out, um, came with some very, um, very tough standards on, on on household battery storage and presumably for
0: businesses as well. But they seem to have back, backed away from it. What's your reading of the situation? Yeah. Look, uh, you know, uh, first I think we definitely do need standards. We need good standards. The standards that we develop must be evidence based. Uh, so that means that anything that is, is, is passed through there needs to be based on independent testing and analysis, uh, but, but we, you know, we, we can't take a bottom-line, one-size-fits-all risk approach, which is really what these standards were proposing. They weren't differentiating in terms of technology type, you know, chemistry type, nor were they differentiating between uh, systems that have been developed by companies like Sony or LG or Panasonic and others, and something that someone might put together in their back shed. And so, they are major areas that that are very different, need to be treated differently, and need different risk outcomes uh, and I'm hoping that with collaborative effort you know the, the industry regulators and others uh, can get together and solve this and move it forward so we get a, a workable solution that gives it you know certainty to industry uh, you know confidence to consumers uh, that you know uh, but but gives us something that we can you know uh, implement sensibly. I, I, I still can understand why we didn't actually get them in the first place because I mean you seem to have all the players there talking about the issue for many months look uh, you look uh, you know uh my frustration is that these are insider processes that have really been set up for insiders the way that you into you know that you you engage with the standards process is arcane uh, it's secretive uh, it's very uh, you know uh, it's, it's very much an insider's game uh, and so uh, it, you know you, you get uh, you get one group that are sort of commissioned to write the standard they basically use the template of an old lead acid battery standard which isn't fit for purpose uh, and then you know it's all a Secret until it gets released to the public, and of course the public say, "No, oh, this is way out of step with what we expect in the industry." Uh, and so I think when you have those secretive, um, you know, it, you know, processes that aren't really that inclusive, I think you you get a poor outcome. Mm. Uh, so that's what I'd like to see improved next time
1: around. David, uh, secretive, arcane, hard to understand. Um, sounds pretty much like the whole electricity industry, doesn't it?
2: Well. Historically, standards have always been used by incumbents to keep new entrants out, and uh, I wouldn't know whether that's the case here. But uh, that's that's, you know, uh, I do I, I couldn't agree more with John that uh, every all the research says evidence-based uh, approach to to studies and making standards and rules is the way to go. Evidence-based, you know, not a not an expert opinion. Evidence-based, and along that line, we had the AMC also uh, pulling back this week from. Trying to charge solar customers extra for their use of the system, which, you know, I, I do think grid pricing is, is is something that needs a huge amount of fundamental reform, but just whacking an extra charge on solar guys uh, just seems grossly unfair to me.
1: Yeah, John, I think um, we we talked about earlier with Transgrid, and I guess we've seen the networks before um, talking about their vision for getting to sort of zero renewables, sorry, of zero emissions by 2050. So we're seeing a lot of the players in the market actually sort of seeing what the future is, but um, a lot of them still have got their, their, their hands
0: out trying to pocket as much as they can on the way through. Yeah, it's just it's it's really uh, it's this messy transition and uh, and but you know look uh, we have history on our side the economics work the the environmental uh, benefits dividends are compelling uh, and and when we see these areas where you know the incumbents are grating with this transition uh, you know we need to to call it out loudly.
1: So what's your what's your vision then, or what's your sort of hope, or, or what do you see happening in the policy areas? I mean, we're seeing sort of state a lot of state initiatives. But, Gee, I think we have to be realistic and think a lot of those are going to be dep- very much dependent on state on elections next year. Um, Federal seems to be moving very cautiously. Um, Frydenberg and Turnbull are not sort of thrusting a clean energy target upon, upon the right wing of their party yet to try to manage that one through, um, if that's what they're what, trying to do. What?
2: Well, you know, Giles. You know, when you, you this is what's so frustrating about the current federal parliament is you've got the minister for dual nationals, and you've got all this uh, uh, complete garbage about citizenship. Well, it's not garbage; it's very important, but it, it actually distracts us from the job of getting on with the main policy debates, like the clean energy target. Where are we with that? You know, the snowy two. Where are we with that? This thing's all these are major things that impact the whole every. Every uh, voter and electricity, because every voter is an electricity customer pretty much, and, and we're just not seeing the progress that we need.
0: Well, uh, Giles, I'd say it's, it's even more fundamental than that. The federal government does not have a policy for renewable energy past 2020. Think about that. Think about that right. (laughs) Today, what what are we? Uh, Two and a half years from 2020, right? There is no policy and there is no uh, sign of any intention to bring one in at all. In fact, Feidenberg was saying the other day that, oh, it's still two and a half years away. Right. So so can you imagine, you know, as a major economy, this is a major transition, a major shift for our country. We're seeing the benefits in places like North Queensland, you know, what this can actually do. And then we go on to talk about the reduced electricity wholesale cost input that actually reduces costs for business in Australia, makes us more competitive. And there's no policy for this. And and it's so divisive inside the, the federal coalition, they can't even have a conversation or a debate about it. This is a fundamental problem. We should call it out for what it is. And I think ultimately, um, you know, th- there needs to be political pressure or these people will not move. Mm. And, you know, we could add to that. It's not just
2: electricity, although that's certainly the most important. It's also vehicles, uh, other forms of energy there is just uh, <laughs> the usual policy vacuum but you know what we can sit around and complain about that uh, or we can just t- turn to helping the states uh, get on with the job and this is where I think New South Wales again needs to get its head really fully focused and get get beyond the sort of pretty words down to actual implementing some stuff I mean Liddell is the next coal-fired power station to close that's 2022 uh, you know AGL's written that up in large headline letters. Where's the the renewable energy that we're going to need in this state to be built before then? And where are the policies in New South Wales to actually help us get it done? Indeed,
1: and there's been a bit of um, talk in the last week um, from people worrying that um, a planned auction by the New South Wales government might actually not go ahead now um, for whatever reason. And we're trying to sort of find out a bit more about that and we'll let you know during the week.
2: That reminds me, Giles, as well, you know, like the they were going to have a, an auction for the electricity for the uh, Sydney Metro that's been built. That was announced in early 2016. <laughs> you know, it
1: hasn't been awarded yet. Yes, I know these these auctions do take a long time. Guys, look, the, the, the dog is knocking at the door for dinner, um, which probably means that we're um, heading towards uh, the end of our time here. Look, just before we go, um, next week, well, John, you've got your conference up there in um, Queensland, which sounds pretty good. Um, anything else that you can see on the... Um on your agenda for the coming week?
0: Yeah, sure, well obviously the Queensland thing, Thursday the 31st at the Ridges Hotel in Townsville. Go to our website solar.org.au to register. The other big news for us is that we've just launched our Smart Energy Training Centre. Uh, So um, we've put together a consortium, a network of registered training organisations nationally who will be delivering uh, in every state and territory by the end of the year uh, accredited and non-accredited training on solar, energy storage and smart energy management every month. So we're we're about providing the industry with the skills it needs to go and implement and provide good outcomes for consumers uh, and provide a good professional base for for our industry long
1: term. Congratulations on that initiative. Um, David, what have you got on? You um, you got a visit to Adelaide?
2: Ah yes, there's an arena thing on over there that they've invited me to, uh, redesigning the wholesale market for high renewables penetration or something. Uh, uh, a, a, it sounds and, worthy. Uh, <laughs> it does. It sounds very interesting and I'm actually looking forward to it a lot. And, and then I guess I'll be looking to see that the Port Augusta financing, the the, the concentrating solar financing uh, progress because I still think there's a certain amount of uncertainty about that. And I guess I'll be, I'll be keeping an eye on all these other things we've been talking about. Today. Yeah.
1: Well, look, there's a couple of other things on the um, on the horizon. The ESU, the electricity opportunity statement from AEMO. I don't think it's going to happen this week. After all, it will go down to the next week. But there's a big shindig in New South Wales, well, in Sydney, uh, this week. I think it's the um, the Sundowners event where all the solar industry get together. And my information is there's already six and a half thousand dollars on the tab, on the bar. So you probably need a fair few hundred people to be able to drink through that in two hours. And I guess that probably means that things are pretty good in the solar industry
2: right now. So, um, um, Someone told me they owed me an invite to that. I'm, I think I might go, go and collect there, Giles. You've just talked me into it.
1: <laughs> I think look, it'll probably be an interesting place to go to hear some good stories. Look, um, David, thank you very much um, as usual. And John, um, look, thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, David. Thanks, Charles. Okay, thanks, David. And um, thanks to everybody else. Bye-bye.
0: Energy Insiders is brought to you by Solaray Energy. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solaray.com.au and secure your energy future today.